Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 232. Today is the 7th of May 2017, and this interview is with Noor Toguri, who's a first-generation Libyan-American, who's on a special mission to help everyone find their personal legend. A journalist, anchor, producer, and speaker, Noor has created the streetwear clothing line, has been featured in Playboy, and has produced a number of stirring documentaries for Newsy, where she's working full-time. With a very strong social media presence, traveling constantly and blazing a trail, Noor is quite the inspiration. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Midlalag, and welcome Noor Taguri. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it. Tajuri, Taguri, I hear it differently. So you and I met at South by Southwest, and I got to hear your story. You are a vibrant beacon of energy uh, on a mission, <laughs> and uh, that's why I needed, I really wanted to have you on my show. So thanks you for joining and Tell us in your words, who you are, Noor, and, um, and what's your mindset? Awesome. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. So, Noor Tajuri or Noor Tagori, um, funny story behind that. So, technically, it's pronounced Tajuri. Um, my family is from Libya, and so that's how it's pronounced. But when they came to the States, because my grandmother was born and raised in Egypt, and they pronounced the J as a G, they spelled it with oh. a G. And it became Tagori. And so ever since then, it's just been Tagori. Unless people really know, yeah. they'll say Tajuri, which I th- thought it was awesome that you knew that. <laughs> but anyway, um, I am a journalist. I'm an anchor producer over at Musi, and I'm a motivational speaker. So I tour um, to different businesses, companies, and universities about the importance of diversity and individuality and identity and pursuing your passion and maximizing on your potential. I um, host different documentary series. Um, I've done one on the immigration of food and communities into the U.S., uh, one on women who work in male-dominated fields, and other stories in between. And I'm currently working on a documentary series about sex trafficking in the U.S., um, traveling around the country and kind of doing, well, doing a lot of investigative work on that. So that's where I'm at right now. We have a couple other projects that are coming up that I'm um, working on, but those are secrets for now. But yeah, besides that, um, in my free time, I enjoy watching Bob's Burgers, and that's pretty much it. Oh, and eating cheese. That's that is the summary of who I am. We'll need to have you over in France, the, the pays du fromage. Um, <laughs> and of course, you're you're 48 years old, which is how you've oh managed, absolutely managed to accomplish <laughs> to accomplish <laughs> all that stuff in your life. So, I mean, a crazy crazy thing is, I guess you're roughly 23. Is that something right? Yeah, I'm 23. There you go, crazy, absolutely crazy. So, in your TED talk, you uh, t- you mentioned this notion of being rebellious, and and uh, I noted down, it's a form of honesty to be rebellious. Your honest self. It is by being rebellious. Can you elaborate on that? I'd like to dig in on that one. Oh, absolutely. I love uh, I love talking about that because um, I also mentioned in my TED Talk that people think that rebellion is like dyeing your hair green or burning your bras on a stick or um, just like kind of lashing out. But 
I think in a society today where people, it's so easy to conform and to just kind of become a carbon copy of each other. Like you can go through Instagram and scroll through your feed and barely recognize who someone is from the other because everything kind of looks the same. And so for me, trying to peel those layers and just understand who you genuinely are, who you like, what you identify as, as a human being and, and, and embracing that wholeheartedly and absolutely um, is a form of rebellion because you're saying no to what everybody else thinks that you should be and what society tells you to be, what they tell you, what it tells you to look like um, and who you should become and take on, your own path, like make your own opportunities and embrace that entirely. And it's something that people are not used to. It's not comfortable. It shouldn't be comfortable. And in that sense, it's totally rebelling against comfort, against societal norms, and against what we were always taught to be. Well, so within societal norms, one part of that could be put under the umbrella of political correctness. Because in the end of the day, that is a homogenization of society, political correctness. We can't talk about that. We can't talk about this. You can't call them this. And so we end up with this sort of really bland vocabulary. So isn't that somehow an antipodes with what you're trying to establish? So I think that when it comes to political correctness, that it's important to understand that in, in order for us to be politically correct or challenge that, that there has to be an understanding of what you're talking about and who you're talking about. Um, when I, when I talk about a self rebellion and, and, and being your most authentic self, I'm talking about being your, the best version of yourself and maximizing on your own potential. When you're usually having a conversation about, Oh, you can't say this, you can't call them this, you can't say that, that stems from respecting the choice that other people have made of what they identify as, who they identify with, and what protects them and makes them feel safe. And so it is never anybody else's right to take that away from them and to take away who they are and who they've identified as and their most authentic self and abuse that or exploit it. And so so you need to, it's not a matter of we can't talk about this. I think we can talk about anything. But it's a matter of, are you talking about it in a respectful way? Are you harming the people that you are talking about when you use certain terms? I, I'm doing a, a, a series on sex trafficking. And I'm just now conscious, like being more conscious of not calling um, people, like you can't call victims or survivors prostitutes, but women who were prostituted or trafficking victims. Because you don't, I, they don't identify themselves wholeheartedly as that that was something that they went through and so that's something that you have to kind of make that diff the, the the distinction between because as soon as you take that high stand where you're just like well we can't even talk about this anymore I can't use the terms that I've always wanted to use it should make you reflect on yourself and be like well why can't I mm -hmm. and who's being affected and who is this hurting and is this actually contributing to me being my most authentic and best self because I'm I could possibly be hurting someone or am I helping someone? And so all of that, like, yeah, you can take the kind of play devil's advocate and be like, well, some people want to be their most authentic self and it's a pretty shitty person. But really when I talk about it or the mentality that I have towards it, it's how can you be the best version of yourself um, and contribute to society and contribute to the world? Like I try to keep a very positive mindset um, 
in a, in a time that seems pretty dark because it's really hard for people to uh, feel like there's still hope or to feel like they're heard or to feel like they're respected. And I, I'm fighting to take those narratives back. So, Noor, when I listened to you in Austin, we what you, you recounted the story of this moment where, well, obviously you, you had this early notion that you had to be a journalist. And then yes. you, you had this upbringing with your mum, uh, this Muslim identity in America, yes, no headscarf. And then one day you have this epiphany, epiphanaic moment where you say, this is it. I need to wear a, a headscarf and that's going to mm. be part of my identity or if not you know, the identifying factor. Can you just describe yeah. us in your words? Because that's the best, that's the best uh, interpretation I had. <laughs> so I grew up in a very small conservative town. I was the only girl in my first grade class who had dark brown hair. Right. Sat down next to an, the other girl who had dark brown hair and asked her if she was Muslim too, because I had never seen a girl with dark brown hair at school. And my mom was very confident in her hijab. She wore it in out South Alabama um, after I was born, and I think even my dad was like, are you sure you want to wear it here? And she took it on and was very confident in it. And I was almost like jealous or didn't really understand how she, she could be so confident in a town where people didn't look like her. And growing up, I absolutely 100%, I was 100% sure of who I wanted to become. I wanted to be Oprah. That's as simple as I put it. Um, and I wanted to tell stories and I wanted to talk to people and share their stories. And in order to do that, in my head, I knew I could not wear a headscarf and nor did I really want to. And so I had like before I knew about the terms diversity or inclusivity, I knew that there was a glaring lack of it on television, that this wasn't something that um, people were familiar with. And so I um, just kind of put it in my head. I was never going to wear it. My parents and the people around me never said anything about it because they knew I was never going to wear it. And then when I moved right outside of D.C., I experienced a culture shock. I had never seen so much diversity, people wearing things that they liked, um, doing things with their hair, coloring their hair, having no hair, whatever it was. And I was jealous of it. I was like, why is it that they can do that and they can be themselves and I'm still struggling? And I had no idea what to do. And I impulsively put on the hijab one day. Can't tell you exactly why, but essentially it was like a version of me putting it, putting myself on for the first time. And it wasn't easy at first, and I don't think anybody around me even thought I was going to keep it on. But surprisingly, as soon as I put it on, I actually got offered an internship at a newspaper right after, and I took that as a sign of, okay, maybe I can actually do this. And from there, I ended up uh, finishing high school at 16, finished early so I could start college, so I could get a head start because I knew it was going to be harder to get a job. And I can't say that I put it on for the most spiritual or religious reasons, but I almost put it on to like find a sense of identity and then I put it on as a challenge to myself because it made me, it forced me to work way harder than I think I ever would have because I knew that if I was going to get this job, I had to be the best. And so putting it on, I worked as like the hardest I ever possibly could so I could be the best. And that's cool. What, what happened to your religiosity? Uh, has, it had a, has it had any inflection along the way? So... I've always practiced my religion, um, like being Muslim is more of a lifestyle than anything else, but everybody does it to whatever their extent is. Um, but after I put it on, I don't, I would never say that I just got more religious. I think, not I think, I know, I just got more spiritual and more in tune. And so all of the opportunities that came about, I always thanked God for them because I knew that they came from him. 
Um, when I would go through certain hardships or struggles, um, I would always remind myself that there was a reason I was going through this and that there was something good that was going to come from it. There's a term we have called tawakkul, which uh, pretty much means like absolute and total faith in God and like trust in him. And my mom taught me from a very young age that like no matter what, just always have tawakkul in your heart and everything will kind of work out. And for me, I, it always did. And so I always felt this more spiritual connection in this journey that like my my job in pursuing my passion was almost a responsibility now because I had realized there was like a lack of representation. There was a lack of understanding and there weren't people who were doing much about it or that many people who could actually even do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And that if I were giving these opportunities that I would and not by, by getting on a pedestal and sort of starting to preach to people because I'm not a, a scholar. I have, I can't sit there and tell people exactly what certain scriptures say or whatever but just being myself mm -hmm. and being confident and being proud of who I am was enough. And being able to go and tell stories from a certain perspective was enough. Being able to go into conversations of people who had never shared their stories before and look at them and say, I know what it's like. I know what you're feeling. I know how it feels to be misrepresented in the media or for somebody to take your story and run with it. And because I know what that feels like, I'm not going to do it. So trust me with your story, and I promise we will give you the platform to share your truth. Yeah, so it sounds and I've like, gotten... Yeah, go sorry. ahead. I was thinking, so it sounds like you've developed a, a greater sense of spirituality, but also a sense of responsibility that's come with it. Absolutely, yeah. When, you know, have I, before I was preparing for this, I talked with a few women friends of mine, and I can say, and what we're going to get into next, that clearly there's, there's a, a lot of uh, po polemic... Uh, polemique, as we say in French, it's it's it has a polarizing effect in some some uh, people. So on the one hand, I heard, well, actually, wearing the headscarf eliminates the catcalls, and I'd never mm. considered that idea that it was a way to to avoid having sexist comments by men, you know, whistling at uh, as you walked by a workplace. And I, I thought that was a, an interesting comment that I, I had collected. And on the other side. Of course, and, and you also do talk about this, is that it can also be considered a somewhat of a provocative statement because, you know, you are therefore representing with this headscarf all of the, you know, sexism or, you know, in, in, in perception of sexism that people look at the Muslim religion as providing when you have to wear a headscarf, uh, where the women have to wear a headscarf. So in, in, your, in your mind, what is the message that you say, and it isn't mm -hmm. divided between Muslim and non-Muslim. How, okay. how do you focus on those two, two, two different areas? So it's funny that you mentioned that. My mom asked me the other day, do you think that wearing hijab prevents you from being sexually harassed? And I told her, absolutely not. Mm. Absolutely not. People who are going to catcall are going to do it no matter what. And I was having this, I've had this conversation so many times the past couple of weeks. It's crazy, but I, Almost every single person, every single woman that I've ever met, every single one has been sexually harassed or assaulted before. I know the statistic is like one out of four, no. but please bring me the other three that haven't because I, I, we don't, I don't know them. I think, and, well, I think it will depend on what exactly we're talking about, but right. you know, I mean, cause you know, a cat call it's harassing, but there's worse and you know, yeah, well, I wouldn't call that harassment compared to being violated and so on. So, well, just assault. I actually haven't really met anybody who hasn't but right um but 
but yeah, so in terms of it being, I know there's an argument that people, that people see it as something that is sexist, but I absolutely disagree with that. Um, in Islam, men actually have a hijab too. It's just not really covering their hair, but they're, um, technically supposed to cover from their navel to their knee. Um, and aside from the dress, hijab is more about your character than anything else. It is about being like focusing on what people have to say rather than what their body looks like. Um, a sense of modesty and a sense of empowerment, but to every single person, it's different. And for me, choosing to wear it was a way to empower myself and say, I have something valuable to say, listen to what I have to say, listen to my message. And if anything else, it's my choice. And that's what it is. I was on, when I was on Le Grand Journal on Canal Plus, I literally said, I don't care if women are walking out naked or if they're walking out completely covered. I don't think a government should be telling someone how to dress or men should be telling women how to dress. It is up to them. And at the end of the day, I will always fight for that. It is up to a person to choose how they dress. Now, if I choose to dress this way and other people are going to look at me and be like, oh, you're doing this because your husband or your dad told you, which is not true, absolutely not true at all. Because even in Islam, it, like there is no compulsion in religion. You have to choose to do it. Otherwise, it doesn't even count. And if you do it for your own sense of self and for your own faith and for your own empowerment. And for me, this is my way of kind of just being like, no one can touch me. Like no one can can tell me like what to look like. Like I am taking absolute control over my body and I will stand along someone from like the free the nipple campaign who's doing the same thing, has the same message, but doing it in a different way because that's how I choose to and that's how she chooses to chooses to, but I'll never take that away from her. And I'll never sit there and be like, oh, you're like brainwashed or you're this or you're that, like how people have done to me. Because when it comes down to this and when it comes down to feminism, it is all about choice. And in my, in, in my belief, in my faith, like that's what it is. It's everything comes down to choice and you are responsible for the choices that you make. And so I will always support that right to have the choice to do what it is that you do. And so when you're seeing... I mean, of course, there are situations um, where women are oppressed, um, whether they're forced to not wear the hijab because a lot of men don't like women wearing it or where they they're forced to wear it. That has nothing to do with religion. That is strictly cultural. And from that, that's sexism. Like, I believe that a lot of um, women in, in our country are like are oppressed. See, like people don't realize that it's not simply about covering. It's about there are so many aspects to just kind of being submissive to what men are telling you to do or dress um, and not giving you a choice. I was on, I was on a plane with a woman from Atlanta who was a teacher and she was sitting next to me. She had never really met a Muslim before. She was asking me about the hijab and I always try to include in the conversation. Oh yeah. Like when I chose to wear it because people don't realize that you've chosen to wear it. And she was so shocked and she was like, I thought you were forced to wear it, whatever. So then she says this, she was like, I don't mean to sound really ignorant, but like, what do you wear when you go swimming or you are exercising? And I was like, that's actually not an ignorant question. An ignorant question is usually like, do you take showers with that? Because otherwise, how would I wash my hair? But for her to ask that, I just answered the question. And then she kind of sat and thought to herself. And then she told me that she came from a very conservative Christian family and her husband was cheating on her and she had melanoma, skin cancer. And after she got her treatment, 
she would not go out in the sun unless she was covered. Her arms and legs were covered and she's wearing a hat. And her husband left her saying, I refuse to be seen with you in public at the beach or at the pool, not wearing a bathing suit. Oh, like a burkini. And I looked at her and I was just like, oh my God, do you realize that that's oppression? Like where your husband is embarrassed or refuses to be out because you chose to cover your body. Hmm. I doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like I'm choosing to do this. So nobody's telling me what to do, you know? Yeah, at a certain level, obviously, uh, Noor, you're you're in this mode of you've got the the message of the of the hijab and 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 that freedom. But what the other message I I really particularly grabbed onto was this notion of of knowing who you are, and so uh, you you have a large audience on social, and uh, you even have older people who come to you and say, "Listen, how did you how did you find out who you were?" So yeah. uh, what kind of what's your message? What's your narrative on that? How do you? I mean, because at the end of the day, you're lucky in some regards. You've it came to you. The light of Noor shone on you, and you you found your this path. You know, and maybe yeah. by the way, it will change because you're you're still you're not forty odd years old. <laughs> you're, you're much younger. And um, ha- for those who who have not found their way, what kind of insights do you have, or how do you help people? Because I mean, the vast majority of people, especially at your age, have no idea. Right. So for me, it was kind of going back to my roots of who I knew I was when I was younger. When I talk about personal legend and just knowing like what it is that you're on this planet for, what your purpose is, it comes like I trace back to when I was a kid and, and the thing that I was best at was just asking questions. But I think that everyone is very familiar with what it is that made them them from a very young age, like what you were good at or what um, sparked a fire in your heart. And that's something that like gets muddied or gets watered down or goes away because of social standards, what your parents are saying, fear of not making money, um, just being in your comfort zone. And so like kind of just trace back to what it was that actually made you feel like ignited and and made you feel like you were doing something or made you happy and combine that and that skill with causes that pain you. So for me, a cause that pains me is misrepresentation of communities or things that women are going through or sex trafficking. And so I always take my storytelling skills and my asking questions and I put it towards those causes and tell stories of underrepresented communities or, um, start a clothing line to combat sex trafficking and empower girls through education. So just being able to kind of like retrace their steps and going back to those and just realizing that every single thing that you're, that you want is outside of your comfort zone. And so that the more comfortable that you are, the more dangerous that is. Like a lot of people are afraid of failure, but failure is kind of the only way that you'll realize that you're doing something you're going somewhere. It's like a better direction than just, being stagnant. And for me, that was constantly taking risks. Like I can't tell you how many jobs I was rejected from or how many times people were like, this is just never going to happen. Or you're crazy. If you think this is going to happen. And every single time that happened, instead of saying, man, maybe this really just isn't for me. And I even had women who wore hijab who reached out to me who were like, I'm sorry. Like I get that you're trying to do this, but it's always going to be the job or the scarf. Like it never worked out for any of us. So you either take it off or you become a producer. And for me, I just always saw that as an opportunity to say, 
this just wasn't the right fit for me. And I'm going to find a place that Mm -hmm. I would fit in. Like, why would you want to work in a place that doesn't want you? And so I was always able to kind of take those chances. But even after all that, when I was working in local news, I quit my job um, to, to pursue a documentary with my own equipment and just did it on my own because I wanted to put out something that I really cared about and see where it would go. And because of that documentary, I landed this job that I'm at right now where I'm pursuing my third series of something that I'm so passionate about. So wonderful. Uh, at the very end, uh, I'll ask you to, to allow everyone to know how to get in touch and see, see whatever you, you're producing. But all right, and I wanted to circle in on the notion of your presence online. So Noor Tajuri, you have your .com, you have your Twitter, your Instagram, Facebook, uh, you know, you're, you're out there. How, A, do you uh, approach that? I mean, give us some insights as to how you're managing that, because obviously with several hundred thousand followers all over the place, that's a lot of, um, a lot of incoming uh, messaging. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely. Um, I, I, I have to admit, I think I was better at it before it got so big, um, because now it's a little bit overwhelming, and I do have a team that kind of filters through, and I try to take my time when... Um, when I'm getting like letters or really heartfelt messages that I know people are really taking their time to put out and just take things into consideration. But at the same time, because I'm a brand who's a person, I try not to read too much um, because it's easy to have conversations about how you maintain your social media, but like actually taking care of yourself while maintaining social media is hard. And I have a lot of friends who have numbers around mine or even more who go through serious depression because of the stuff that people say about them online. And for that, like my strategy and my, um, the way that I do it is probably not very common at all, but I just simply put out content that I believe in and I put out things and and then if people vibe with it, they do. And if they don't, they don't, but I'm just myself. Like that's really what it is. And then from managing, like I, I, I have people who kind of go through, through like comments or emails or whatever so that we can filter through and make sure that it stays pretty clean. But, um, and I just like kind of talk social strategy. So I always try to have like an aesthetic for each, each format. So whether it's Facebook, I'll like make longer posts or tweets. I'll like have about random thoughts, Instagram, obviously for like certain photos, which I try to maintain an aesthetic, but it's a bit hard because I also just post a lot of personal stuff because even when you're a brand and this is like for brands who are, are not, solely based on a people having a person carry your message is what people respond to. And that's why brands are like reaching out to influencers now, Sure, but, but don't reach out to people just because they have the numbers. Yeah. A see if they have the engagement because the, if, if somebody has 60,000 followers, but they're getting like 10,000 likes a post and have crazy engagement, that's more beneficial to you than if somebody has 500,000 followers and only gets like a thousand likes. Or, or even or if they get the six thousand likes, it's just a small, such a small percentage compared to. Exactly. So, but even when you're a brand, like it's 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 sad seeing brands muddy themselves and become untrustworthy because it, that's what happens is you don't become trustworthy when you oversaturate with influencers who who everybody knows is getting paid mad money but don't actually believe in your product. Mm. So for me, as a person in general, even like I'm extremely particular with what products or what um, what things that I will like post about or use because a I'm not a blogger, but I would never post about something that I didn't care about or that I didn't actually 
enjoy and I don't ever want to tarnish my brand that way. And now it's like you, you see brands who just take influencers who just have a ton of followers and it takes away from who they are because I'm just like, this isn't authentic because we know you sent them a script. So to be, to be clear, then you are masterminding all of your posts. I mean, is, is that, is that accurate or what, oh, absolutely, how do you, de- yeah. how, what, what can you delegate to someone that's, I mean, let's go, you, you become the Oprah of tomorrow and these are millions. Um, at what point do you say, good Lord, I can't continue to take all the selfies. Can I have somebody else manage that uploaded? Cause I don't have time. Oh, absolutely. To- so I have people who I work with who literally, who I've talked to so much who can actually talk in my voice, but nothing is posted. Nothing goes out unless it goes through me. Um, And I'm okay with it, but I have a really awesome team around me that just knows me, like inside out. And so I would trust to delegate those things. But for now, I enjoy being able to do that myself. I'll create, like, with my management, um, a social media schedule for, like, a couple of months out if I'm going to be super busy and be like, post X, Y, and Z this day, post this this many this day, this many whatever. Um but besides that, like everything has to kind of come from me. And that's the only way people are going to feel it. Like they know, even if you have like a pretty basic photo, but you're writing out something that is straight from your voice, people will engage with that more than if you take like a really nice photo and you don't have anything under it. Right. So uh, do you not feel at some point you'll need to sort of tag it NT and or not? I mean, because at a certain level to be true to your authentic I- self if right. you know, you've got other people writing for you, then hmm. yeah, I mean nobody nobody writes uh, this. Nobody writes my social stuff right now. Um, but if I have, if I'm stumped, or if I like, I'm just like, hey, can you help me caption this? Then I'll like talk to somebody else. But um, if I get to that point, then yeah, I would totally sign off um, that way. But I feel like even if I were to get to that point, I would still like look at something and be like, oh, if you're going to post this, then make sure that you write um, something, whatever kind of that set is what I'm actually thinking or it sounds like me. But I really think that like best way to grow a brand is simply from like actually having the face or like in, in whoever the influencer is or whoever the person is that you're working with, be an actual person people connect with and be somebody who has their own message that aligns with yours because otherwise you're, you're missing out on so much potential. We were talking a little bit about this before uh, recording uh, for sure um, about your audience and um, what kind of, I mean, do you find that your audience is is radically different from an Instagram to a Twitter to a Facebook to a YouTube, uh, or do you not care? Or how do you? I mean, yeah, I want to get back to just this little piece, which is: to what extent do you tailor your message for your audience? Because initially, my mind was: mm-hmm. well, do you have a message that is different from Muslim women for, versus non-Muslim women? So that's really great so, uh, question. So I don't tailor it via platforms. I'll just extend and like make different versions of it to fit each platform. But the message itself is always pretty universal. And if it does cater specifically to, let's say, Muslim women or like people who wear the hijab or whatever, then I will acknowledge that. But it's always in a way where it's still something people can relate to. So, I mean, I've given talks where I pour out my heart about this putting on the hijab. And I have somebody who's transgender coming up to me crying, saying they've never related to someone more than this. And it's because for them, putting on the hijab was putting on like their sense of, like put, for me, putting on the hijab 
for them, it was putting on a sense of identity. And so it's always something universal and people who are able to connect with that universality is where it, where it really comes. That means you got it. Like you get it. So for me, even like, I never had a role model who looked like me growing up, but I was able to connect with people like Oprah or Soledad O'Brien or Lisa Ling because I just got it. I knew where they were coming from. I knew what they had gone through it. I understood it and I related to it. And so what they had to say was always so relevant to me. All right. Last question. Um, you're working at Newsy and uh, mm. full time and you've got these documentaries you're doing. When you're on a mission like you have with your personal brand on the one hand, and let's say the quality of the mission you're on in terms of being your true self and being, uh, you know, I would say having this strong missionary message. How do you find an organization, I mean, that allows for this? What, 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 when you went in the interviews, how did you sort of cross check and say, this is okay for me. They're going to get me. It's, it's all going to work. Because, I mean, there's what you say, and then there's what you do. Right. So I was so lucky with Newsy because my boss, Zach Toombs, who reached out to me several times and interviewed me, um, had seen the documentary. And when I talked to him, I told like, there was a position open for a policy reporter, and I'm not really a politics reporter. Um, so, And I told him that off the bat, and I was like, he asked me, what are the stories you want to do? I told him about this series. I told him about the other series that I did with them. And I said, I just like wanted to cover things similar to the documentary and, and, and um, misrepresented or underrepresented communities. That was what I did. And I was able to get access to those stories. And at some, at one point, I don't even know if he remembers this, but he kind of was just like, I just want you to come onto this team and do stories like dress this way in your own voice, similar to what you did in the documentary and just go find them and tell them. And I just took that as a, like, wait, are you, like, really? Like, you'll trust me with that. And I I went on board, and every single story that I had pitched or that I wanted to do, we were able to do it. So, like, and all the series were really successful. This one that we're working on right now is starting to look so incredible. I know it's going to be amazing. And it's because he was able to believe in me in, in, in being able to execute or carry out this because he knew that that's where my passion was and that's where my fire was. And, and when you're when somebody who has the ability to hire you or bring you on for a project or a team who can see your maximum potential allows you to live up to that. Um, just great things happen. Like you make amazing content. I, I you know, I have a friend, another friend uh, called Nathan Thornburg and uh, he has started up a company called roads and kingdoms. And I'm just, I was just trying to search for it as, as you were speaking about the, um, the guy who he brought on, uh, who's a very outspoken Englishman who just is who he is. I'm trying to find it as I speak. I'll put it in the show notes. But it, it, oh yeah, Anthony Bourdain. What is interesting about that is that, you know, in the end of the day, if you want to carve out a space in this really crowded audience world that we're living in, this authentic stuff resonates. So you just have to have a leap of faith. And if you're, if you are called in because the boss already has seen what you are and wants more of that, that seems like the good thing, but it, those kind of bosses seem awfully rare. So congratulations for finding that. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so what, what I want to do now is just to uh, say, first of all, what kinds of things can people see, find in your documentaries? What, what, you know, what's already available, what's coming up? And then uh, what's the best way to follow you? Track you down. So all of my social media is ntagori, that's N-T-A-G-O-U-R-I. Um, that's on Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook. <laughs> Um, and in terms of the work that's out, all the stories I've done with Newsy are, are out in terms of 
the Americanized Me series, which was the food series I was talking about. All of the episodes of A Woman's Job are available on Newsy and Hulu. And the stories that I've done on like undercover graffiti artists or like the reality of New York Fashion Week or a tattoo artist who uh, covers up gang-related and racist tattoos um, and certain cultural issues in Michigan. Like I've covered a lot of subculture stories and those are all up on um, Newsy and on my website, nortoboy.com. And then what you can expect is end of summer, hopefully beginning of fall, the new series on trafficking will come out and be available on Newsy and hopefully Hulu as well. It's just tragic that that's still existing. And uh, how about the Noor Effect, the clothing line? So the Noor Effect clothing line um, was launched on Listen Up Clothing, L-I-S-N-U-P-Clothing.com. Um, and you can check there to see if we'll re-release or, or do like a limited edition line anytime soon. Um, we'll, that will probably happen sometime in the future, but, um, that whole collaboration was a charity based collaboration as is all of his clothes. So it's really awesome. Mm. Noor, thank you so much for joining me and, um, sharing your story with such great continuing energy and, uh, looking forward <laughs> to staying in touch and following what you are, your trail. So thanks again, Noor. You can have a normal day. Continue on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y. Where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of
The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.